It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. Last week, we finished up our series called This Matters. We finished up a series called This Matters. We looked at the importance of preaching and worship and Lord's Supper and baptism and church membership. We looked at those five things. We looked at the importance of them and we looked at how we practice some of those things here at the Austin Stone. And so if you missed any of those weeks, you can find those sermons online. And starting today, we're going to be back in the book of Exodus. If you remember, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus and we made it all the way to Exodus chapter 20 and where we did a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments this past summer. And so realizing that it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Exodus, what we want to do today is to do a recap of where we are, where we have been in the book of Exodus so far. And then I want us to do a um, message on the purpose of God's law, the purpose of God's law, because that's the section that we are currently in in the book of Exodus. After God gives the Ten Commandments, he's not done giving commandments. He's going to continue to give his commandments for the next ten chapters or so. And really on to the next book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And really the first five books of the Old Testament is called the books of God's law. If you count all the commandments, there are 613 commandments given. 613 of them. We spent 10 weeks on 10 of those. So we're not going to spend 613 weeks, okay? And so what we want to do is we want to do a 50,000 feet view of God's law given in the Old Testament, really do a high-level view and an understanding of the purpose of God's law, and particularly answer a couple of questions that we as Christians have, and those are, number one, do I need to obey God's Old Testament laws? Okay, how many of you have that question? Do we need to obey God's Old Testament laws? Are God's Old Testament laws applicable to Christians today? And number two, do I need to obey God's commandments to be saved? If I do need to obey, do I need to obey in order to be saved? In other words, it's God's offer and promise of salvation to me conditional or unconditional. Is God's promise of salvation to me conditioned upon my ability to keep God's commandments or is it unconditional? And so we'll try to answer those questions, but first uh, recap. The book of Exodus, what's it all about? I think the simplest way that we can say it is that the book of Exodus is about salvation. I think more than anything, the book of Exodus exists to teach us about the nature of our salvation. And so if you've ever asked the question, what does it mean to be saved? Why did I need to be saved? Who saved me? How, how was it that I was saved? If you had those questions, the book of Exodus is for you. The book of Exodus is a story about God's people, the Israelites living in the devastation of slavery in Egypt. No, with power, with no power, to, power to save themselves, rescue themselves, but how God comes to them to rescue them with a mighty hand, deliver them out of slavery, and brings them into salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the story that happened 4,000 years ago was written down, why? For us. For you and I, it was written down for us as an example for us, as a parallel to our story. 
so that we can see how it is that God saves us out of our slavery to sin and death just as God saved the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. And so if you've ever read or studied the book of Exodus, as, if, as you've been following along with the Sunday sermons, the reason why it may resonate so deeply is because we can so easily see ourselves in their story. We could easily see ourselves in their story. The parallels are so striking. And so perhaps you see that just like the Israelites, you find yourself still in slavery in Egypt, powerless to save yourself. Or perhaps you're experiencing God's power as with the 10 plagues and you're experiencing the shaking of the foundations of your life as you know it. Or perhaps you're just at the edge of the Red Sea. You're about to cross, but you haven't crossed yet. You're about to experience the greatest work of God in your life, but you stand there petrified. As you look back at Pharaoh and his army chasing after you, and you're asking the question, if I cross, what will it cost? If I cross, what will God ask of me? If I cross, how will my life change? Or perhaps you've just crossed over and you've just experienced God saving you. You're so thankful and you're so grateful and there's a joy inexpressible about you and, and you just can't believe it that this God would set his love upon you, that he would send his son for you. Or perhaps... It's been a little while since you've crossed the Red Sea and all those initial feelings you had for your first love, for your God has faded a bit and you find yourself wandering, circling in the wilderness, losing trust in a God who you once trusted so intimately, losing love in a God who you once loved so passionately, but yet still you sense him not letting you go yet still you sense him still coming after you. Well, this is the beauty of the book of Exodus. Many times we live our lives and we don't quite know what's happening. We can't quite put words to how God is working in our lives, but God shows us in the book of Exodus what he's doing. I'm bringing you from here to here. I'm rescuing you from this and bringing you into this freedom. These are all the incredible parallels we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. And of course, they're incredible. But the problem is that many of us would stop the parallel right here. If we were to describe the nature of our salvation, we would stop the parallel right here. We would say, yeah, I was a slave to sin and death, just like the Israelites were slaves to Egypt. I was completely powerless to save myself, just as the Israelites. But God came, he acted. Right? And he saved me. I went through the baptismal waters as it were. I went through that Red Sea experience and now I am saved. And I no longer have to face the consequences of sin, death, and hell. That's how you would describe the nature of the parallel of your salvation. But then what? Now what? Well, now we wait until we die and go to heaven. Well, now some of you are asking, well, what else is there? Well, the problem is that many of us would stop the parallel here, but the parallel has to continue. The book of Exodus will con continue. We don't yet have a complete picture of our salvation yet. Think about it. The first half of Exodus really is incredible. It's literally the stuff movies are made of. 
It's literally the stuff movies are made of, but what if the story really did end right after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea? A people numbering in the millions, men, women, and children, literally all they've ever known is slavery, right? 430 years of slavery. There's not a single person that was born outside of slavery. That's all they knew. So now what? What will they do? How will they live? How should they live? A people free from Egypt, yes, but just as vulnerable now for another powerful nation to come along and enslave them. If the story ends right here, is that really freedom? Is that really salvation? If God saves you, okay, if God saves you and says, okay, go and live the way that you want, and when you die, I'll make sure you make it to heaven. Is that freedom? Is that salvation? Is that the great salvation that Jesus died to purchase for us? And this was the message that we talked about in the earlier chapters of Exodus. That, that the famous line that we remember and love from the Charlton Heston movie is Moses standing before Pharaoh and saying what? Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? That's the line we remember and that we love. But that's not what Moses said. That's not what Moses said. God told Moses to say, Pharaoh, let my people go so that so that they may worship me, so that they may worship me. That true freedom and salvation isn't found in having no master at all, but in having the right master. True salvation is not found in having no master and so you're free to go do whatever you want, but true freedom and salvation is found in having the right master. The concept of freedom and liberty is something that we as Americans love. And the modern view of freedom is this, to have no lord or master, isn't it? To have no restrictions on your individual choice, to belong to no one, to be owned and ruled by no one. That true freedom is a freedom to belong to yourself and to be able to do what pleases you. And for many of you, the notion of living the way that you want and then dying and making it into heaven sounds great. Sounds like exactly what you signed up for. But the problem with this modern view of freedom is that it's not biblical at all. It's not the way that the Bible would define freedom. God did not say, let my people go, just let them go so that they can do whatever they want. He didn't say, let my people go so that they can live the way that they want. He didn't say, let my people go so that they could pursue their dreams and aspirations. He didn't say, let my people go so that they can do whatever it is that they think will make them happy. That's not what God said. God told Moses to say, let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they will do my will and not their own. Let my people go so that they will experience the joy of serving me and not all these other things that demand their service. Let my people go so that they will pursue my plans for them, which make their own dreams and aspirations for themselves look puny. See, many of you are living exactly the way that you've chosen for yourself. Why is your life the way it is right now? Why are you living the way that you are living right now? Because you've made decisions for yourself, right? Because you've chosen those decisions and that lifestyle and those actions for yourself. Because you thought it would make you happy. Because you thought that's how you would experience fulfillment. And so the question is, so are you happy? Do you feel free? Is there a liberation about you? 
Many of you, the way that you make your major life decisions, the fundamental question you ask that governs and rules your life is this question. Well, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Who should I date? Who should I marry? Should I get a divorce? Should I take this job? What major should I do? Well, what do I want to do? That is the fundamental question that many of us are ruled by, but as Christians, we need to be ruled by a different question. What does God want me to do? What does God's word say? What does God's word command of me? Many of us, our lives are the way that it is because it is the life we've chosen for ourselves, being governed and ruled by the question, what do I want? So the question now is, so are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you flourishing? What God is showing us is that the only way to truly be free, the only way to truly be liberated, the only way to truly escape slavery is not when you're serving no master, but when you're serving the right master. Not when you're free to do whatever you want, but when you're finally free to do whatever he wants. That's true freedom. It's only when we're serving the right master that the deepest longings of your soul will be satisfied because you will finally, for the first time in your life, be doing what you were created and designed to do. Isn't that true? Why are you here today? Why do you exist? Because God created you. And if he created you, he created you for a purpose. He created you with a design. And what is that design? to find your greatest fulfillment in obeying him and serving him. What is the true biblical freedom and salvation? What do we need to be saved from? We need to be freed from not serving God. We need to be saved from not worshiping God. Okay, but how do we serve God? How do we know how to worship God in a way that pleases him? How do we live our lives in a way that's not governed by what do I want to do, but what he wants us to do? So do you see the purpose of God's law? That's why he gave us the law. So that we will have answers to all those questions. And so the story will continue. Starting in Exodus chapter 20, God gives his people the Ten Commandments and 603 other commandments to obey and live by. Theologians have found it helpful to categorize these 613 commandments into three categories. God's civil laws, ceremonial laws and moral laws. God's civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. So this is a section of the sermon where it's kind of turning into a seminary class. So I really hope you stick with me. But that's the only way we could teach on the purpose of God's laws, right? So there's theologians have categorized it in this way, and it's man-made to help us understand it. And because it's man-made, it's not a perfect system. They overlap here and there, but basically it's this. The purpose of God's civil laws was to govern the Israelites as a nation. That was the purpose. Why? Because all they've ever known were the laws of Egypt, right? So now that they are set free from Egypt, how will they live? How will they be governed as a people? They needed God's civil law. So how to deal with premeditated murder versus accidental death is an example of God's civil law. The purpose of God's ceremonial law. Ceremonial laws was to set apart God and his people as holy and distinct from other peoples and other gods. Why did they need ceremonial laws? Because the only worship they had ever seen, right, the only worship that the Israelites had ever seen were the worship of Egyptian gods. 
and God will not be treated as common. He would not be treated and worshiped just like any other God in Egypt. He is to be holy and set apart. He wanted his people to be holy and set apart. And so God's sacrificial laws, what to offer, how to offer it, is an example of God's ceremonial laws. The purpose of God's moral laws was to show and teach God's moral character, who he is as a person. Why? Because the only God that they knew was the God of their bedtime story, right? A God that they kind of knew of, of this and that. I remember my forefathers, Abraham, and God came and promised him, right? They knew this and that about him, but they didn't truly know him intimately. And so God gave his moral laws to show his character, who he is. Thou shalt not lie is an example of God's moral laws, something that reflects his character. And so we see why God gave the Israelites his laws, okay? But are the Old Testament laws applicable to us today as Christians? That's the question. And if so, do I need to obey God's laws to be saved? And so let's get to some of these questions. First, as New Testament Christians today, do I need to obey God's Old Testament laws? Are they applicable to me today? When we ask this question, are the Old Testament laws applicable to me today? For instance, are the Old Testament dietary laws applicable to me today? Do I have to give up bacon? That's the question we're asking. Well, there's something self-serving about that question, isn't there? When's the last time you read through the book of Leviticus and thought to yourself, oh man, I just can't wait to do all that. I can't wait. Sometimes the very fact that we're asking the question, does it still apply, might be showing the nature of our problem. You know, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they get a bad rap sometimes. We look at some of the things that they do and think, how in the world could they do that? How in the world could they experience all that and see all that, still not trust and still not obey, right? But here's the thing about the Israelites. Whenever they encountered God, Whenever they would hear God command his loss to them, do you know what they said? Every time, do you know what their response was? Their response was, we will do all that you command. Every time, that was their response. We will do all that you command. Did they really think they could obey it all? We don't know. All we know was that they had such a fear, such an awe, such a view of who it was that was commanding them, that the only thing that they could think to say was, we will do all that you command. That was their default answer. That was their default answer when God commanded. What if we were there? What if we were there Picture yourself there and God giving his 613 commandments, one after another, after another, after another. How would you hear it? How would you receive it? No bacon, God? No. If I have a skin problem, I'm unclean? What? I think at best we would have questions, right? What about this, God? What about this? We'd have questions. And at worst, we would just completely refuse. But the Israelites, when they saw this God, when they truly encountered him, when they heard him, their default answer was, we will do all that you command. We often have the wrong default, don't we? 
we're going to see that legitimately the bulk of the 613 commandments that God gave have been fulfilled in Christ and we're no longer under those laws. But as God's people, our default should be, is that God's word? Did God command that? Well, you better prove to me that I no longer have to fulfill it. And until then, I'm going to obey. That should be our default. But instead, our default is, well, you better prove to me that I need to obey it, and until then, I'm not going to obey. Isn't that our default? Prove to me that I have to obey, until then, I'm not going to obey. Well, that's not a fair indictment on everybody, because there is a legitimate confusion that can set in when we read verses like Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law under grace. But then we just read in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. On the one hand, it seems like the New Testament Christian is told that we are no longer under the law. But on the other hand, it says that we can't overthrow it, but that we need to uphold it. What does this mean? Is it applicable or not? Do we need to obey it or not? Jesus said it like this, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Oh, that's not a big deal. You don't really have to do that. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What we need to see is that these verses are not standing in contradiction against one another, but they are both true. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, we are no longer under the law, but still we need to uphold the law. So that's the question. How do you uphold something that you are no longer under? That's the real question. The Bible is not in contradiction. How do you uphold something that you are no longer under is the question. When God commands, we need to obey. The Christian should never ask, do I need to obey God? Of course we have to obey God. He's God. We are his people. But there is a fundamental difference between God's people living in the Old Testament and Christians living in the New Testament, right? It's called the gospel. Somebody named Jesus came on the scene and changed everything. Something fundamentally changed. What changed? Jesus came and he fulfilled every righteous requirement of God's law. And so therefore, the obedience of the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament Christian, it looks different. Make no mistake, we are both called to obey, right? We are both called to obey, but our obedience looks different. How does it look different? Whereas the Israelites in the Old Testament needed to obey God's laws in order to fulfill them, we are called to obey God's law in order to show that they've already been fulfilled, okay? The Old Testament believers, they obeyed in order to fulfill. The New Testament believer, we obey to show it's already been fulfilled. So for instance, there are around 200 commands 
out of the 613, there are about 200 commandments given regarding, regarding how to make a sacrifice to God. All the do's and don'ts involved in making a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of their sins. The Israelites needed to obey every single one. Go down the list. Obey this, 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 right? Offer the exact uh, sacrifice that God wanted exactly in the way that he desired for the forgiveness of their sins. But Jesus has fulfilled all those laws. So how do we obey? Jesus is now the, the once and for all sacrifice that we needed for the forgiveness of our sins. The once and for all sacrifice, he's fulfilled it. So how do we obey those laws? By not sacrificing. Don't you see? If we go out these doors and we make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, it means we are disobeying the fact that Jesus has fulfilled all those laws. And you're thinking, you're, well, you're thinking, you know, I'm good. I'm not sacrificing a lamb today, right? I'm obeying those commandments. But if you think about it, we may not be sacrificing lambs, but we're still breaking, not keeping, not obeying to show that Jesus fulfilled those commands. How? I feel like I need to do something. I sinned. I feel like I need to do something. I feel like I need to pay some penance. I feel like I need to merit my forgiveness somehow. I, I feel like I really need to, need to make up for this, right? You're not fully trusting in the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus has become and that God is satisfied with the payment that has been made. If you try to make up, if you try to merit God's forgiveness, you're saying the payment that Jesus paid is not enough. You have to add to it. All the civil laws given to govern God's people as a nation are now fulfilled in Christ. Jesus has purchased for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. All the dividing walls of hostility that exist between peoples have been destroyed. And therefore, all the dietary laws, all the civil laws that were given to set the Israelites apart and distinct from all other peoples have now ceased. And so when the Gentiles were called into God's kingdom, in Acts chapter 10, it shows us that Peter had a hard time fellowshipping with the Gentile believers. He had a hard time eating with them. Why? Because they were eating things that were told was unclean to him. And so God says to Peter, do not declare unclean the things that I have declared clean. Okay? He says, Peter, you could eat that bacon. Why? Because it's good. Peter, you could eat that bacon because the people of God are no longer a single political body or an ethnic group or a state, but we are a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so we are a people that are welcoming of all kinds of cultural norms that people have as long as it is in keeping with God's moral commands. The dozens of laws regarding priests, right, who can become a priest, what must they do? About a hundred laws regarding the tabernacle have all been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true and once and for all perfect high priest who doesn't die year after year and therefore needs a replacement, but who continually lives to make a sacrifice for God's people. But now we no longer need a physical temple. It's no longer a geographical center of worship, but Jesus himself is the center of worship. He is the place. He is the tent. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. As Christians, we don't have a Mecca. We don't have a Jerusalem. We have Jesus. He is the center of our worship. And so how do we obey? 
how do we obey? We obey those commands by not selecting a priest. We obey those commands by not building a temple as the only place we can worship. And we don't say, okay, all those hundreds and hundreds of God's commands, they don't apply anymore. We don't have to, we don't have to fulfill those commands anymore. And so we, we just neglect them. We don't ever read the book of Le- Le- Leviticus because it's boring. We read them, every single one every single law, and we think to ourselves, wow, all fulfilled in Jesus. Every single one fulfilled in Jesus. You know, sometimes we think it was easy for God to save us, right? God's so loving, he's so powerful, poof. It wasn't easy for God to save us. There were lots of things that were easy for God. There was no light. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Right? All kinds of things in this world that did not exist, and by a mere word, it happened. God could not say, let there be forgiveness. God could not just say, let there be salvation. Someone named Jesus had to come, and he had to obey every single one of God's commands, every single one. The laws that we find too boring to read. The laws that we say that those don't apply anymore. Every single, if he broke one single law, right? If he just told one fib, you and I would be not saved. If he, if Jesus broke one law, we would not be saved. It was incredibly difficult for our salvation to be purchased. It literally took everything that God is in order for us to be saved. It took his everything to save you. Let's not neglect his laws. That's why the psalmist says, oh, how I delight in those things. Oh, how I delight in it. Oh, how I meditate upon it day and night. How do we give Jesus the praise for the salvation that he purchased for us if we don't even know all the things that he fulfilled? What about God's moral laws? What about laws like do not lie, do not steal, do not commit murder? What about those laws that reflect God's moral character? How do we obey those? God's moral laws are different than God's civil laws or ceremonial laws because they are an expression of his nature, a display of who he is as a person. And so when God says don't lie or bear false witness, he's saying that because he is the God of truth who cannot lie. He's saying he is utterly consistent and true. And since you and I are also made in his image, God's moral laws are actually reflecting what you and I need to be. That's what it's doing. How we need to live to be fully who we are. That's what God's moral laws are doing. When God commands don't lie, he's saying to lie goes against your nature as your human beings. It's going against the way that I've made you, and therefore to violate God's law violates you. When Christians sin, we're going against the very nature. We're going against the very grain and pattern of our design. It's like a dolphin trying to walk or an eagle trying to crawl. Against our very nature, we sin, we don't obey God because we think it'll make us happy. Right? 
I know this is what God's commanding me to do, but I don't think I'll be happy if I do that, so I need to, I'm going to disobey. And you may not consciously be thinking all that, but that is the reason why disobey, why we disobey, because we think there's happiness to be found here. But as Matt Carter has said before, for the Christian, it is sinning is a monumental waste of time. Sinning is a monumental waste of time. Why? Because God, God has created you and he's given you such a nature that when you disobey him, you're going against your very nature. When you violate God's law, you are violating yourself. And so when you sin because you think it'll make you happy, in fact, you'll be miserable. That's why it's a monumental waste of time. There's no such thing as a happy sinning Christian. Literally, there is no such thing as a happy sinning Christian. There's such thing as a sinning Christian, right? I'm a sinning Christian. You're a sinning Christian. But there is no such thing as a happy sinning Christian. You'll be happy for about 2.5 seconds and then you'll be miserable. But on the other hand, when we obey, when we obey God's laws, we're finally able to flourish because we're doing exactly what we were created and designed to do. It's like the dolphin slicing through the waters and the eagle soaring across the skies doing what we were created and designed to do. And so obedience does matter. We might obey differently than the Israelites did, but we're still called to obey. But the second question we might have is, so therefore, do I need to obey God's laws to be saved? Do I need to obey God to be saved? Well, look at the parallel again. Look at the book of Exodus. Look at the parallel. Did the Israelites receive God's laws before or after God saved them out of Egypt? Did the Israelites receive God's laws before or after God saved them? After, right? The order is critical. God doesn't come to the Israelites while they're in Egypt slaves to sin and say, Okay, here are my Ten Commandments, and if you obey them, and if I'm satisfied, then I'll save you. No, he doesn't do that. Obedience is not a prerequisite for our salvation. That's why we needed to be saved. We couldn't obey. We didn't have the ability to obey. And so God comes to us while we were slaves, while we were sinners, the Bible says. He comes to us and he saves us without us meriting anything, without us deserving and earning anything. He saves us first, and then he says, okay, now let me show you how to live, right? Let me give you life first. Let me raise the dead first, and now let me show you how to live your life in a way that, you, that will make you flourish, right? Live your life for the very first time in a way where you think, this is the reason why I was made. This is the reason why I was created. Obeying God isn't something that we have to do so that God will save us. Obeying God is something that we get to do because he saved us. The gospel order is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Not I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The reason ultimately why we ask this question, do I have to obey to be saved, is because all throughout the Bible we feel this tension. We feel this tension because we see places in the Bible like Jeremiah 32, where God says, because you've disobeyed, because you've disobeyed, I'm going to cut you off, right? How many of you have read some of these Old Testament kind of verses and you just, well, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to move on. 
because you've disobeyed, I'm going to cut you off and give you up to the other nations because you didn't obey my voice or walk in my law. I'm going to scatter you and make disaster come upon you. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, so I do have to obey to be saved, right? But then a few verses later, you see God saying, I'm going to gather you from all the places to which I drove you in my anger and my fury. I'm going to give them a new heart and make an everlasting covenant with them. And I'm going to rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and with all my soul. And you're thinking, well, that's the God that I knew. Okay, good. So you think, is God's promise of salvation, if you truly thought about it, you're asking, is God's promise of salvation conditional or unconditional? Is it conditioned upon my keeping God's commandments or is it not? And it's a tension that, exp that it's expressed all throughout the Bible. Why? Because the answer, you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. That's the answer. It's conditional. And it's unconditional. Yes, you have to obey to be saved. And no, you don't have to be, you don't have to obey to be saved. Well, how in the world does that make sense? It makes all the sense in the world when you look at the cross. The cross is where the tension finds its resolution. At the cross of Jesus, God is showing that he absolutely demands perfect obedience for salvation. But also at the cross, God is showing us that even if we couldn't obey him in that way, nevertheless, he will save his people. That's what the cross is saying, don't you see? God does, does demand perfect obedience for our salvation. That's why Jesus had to pay the death penalty. That's why he had to die. And on the other hand, God will provide a way for our salvation that's not dependent upon our ability to keep God's laws. And therefore, Jesus had to live a perfect life of obedience, keeping with every righteous requirement of God's laws. Why did Jesus have to live a perfect life? Because God demands perfect obedience for salvation. And why did Jesus have to die even though he was perfect? Because he will save his people. A people who could not obey in the way that he demanded. Is God's promise of our salvation conditional or unconditional? We see the answer at the cross. The answer is yes. It's not that God changed. It's not that we couldn't handle the God of the Old Testament and so now we're happy and joyful with the God of the New Testament. He's both. He's fully both. That's why we needed the cross. At the cross, what we see is Jesus is both our savior and our example. He's, he's our savior and our example. He's both. If we view him to be our savior only, okay, we'll live a life that says, okay, I don't have to obey. I don't have to do all those things because Jesus did everything for me. And you know what? You'll live a miserable life that bears no fruit and you'll feel a life that has complete and absolute no purpose. But if you view Jesus to be your example only, you'll live a life that says, well, I better obey. 
We'll live a life that's constantly in fear. I better obey. I better obey. I better keep all the rules or God won't bless me. God won't save me, right? And some of you, that's why you're exhausted. Because you're thinking to yourself, I better obey or he won't love me. I better obey or he won't save me. You'll live constantly in fear and have no sense of security of God or the love of God. But if you see him to be both, You'll see that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is your Savior. That's the good news. He is your Savior. But at the same time, you'll be able to live a life with purpose. You'll be able to live a life that produces fruit. Why? Because the same Jesus who is your Savior says, now take up your cross and follow me. I'm your example. Obey just as I've obeyed. Do the good things that my father has prepared beforehand for you to do. See, all of God's laws, all of God's laws point us to the gospel. All of God's laws point us to the gospel. Why? Because there was no way a people like you and I could obey all of God's commands perfectly and absolutely. But then the gospel comes and the gospel points us back to the law. The gospel points us back to the law and says, obey, obey, but obey differently. Obey not so that you will be saved. Obey not so that you'll be accepted, but obey because you've been saved. Obey because you've been accepted. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your law. It's perfect in all its ways. The law could not pro produce righteousness or salvation in us, but not because the law wasn't good. It was because it was weakened by our flesh. There was no way that we could obey your perfect law in order to be saved. And so we thank you for the cross. We thank you that at the cross we see that you are a God who never changes. We see that at the cross, we thank you that at the cross we see a God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. You are holy and perfect in all your ways. Father, let us not be a people who neglect your good laws. Let us be a people who meditate upon it day and night and delight in them and in doing so, delighting in all the ways our King Jesus has fulfilled them all, every last one. And let us not stop there, but let us also hear him say to us, follow me. Let us pursue the obedience of your laws because that's where we will be able to flourish as your people. In your presence, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore are not found in anything else but you. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your good law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.